When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth Podcast, the podcast where we talk about philosophy, history, and mythology and their influence on pop culture today. It's awesome to be here with you. And uh, last week, we talked to you about the new Marvel movie, Black Panther, which was an awesome and exciting discussion that we had about this revolutionary new film that really, uh, really stuck, stuck with us, and we loved it. So we... We're excited to continue kind of exploring some of the themes that we went through in Black Panther in a film that uh, feels similar in uh, in some of the story structure and in some of the uh, visuals that we saw in Black Panther. And we love so deeply that we couldn't wait to share something with you with our analysis on this movie. And we assume that you have seen it, but if you haven't, we are, of course, talking about the 1994 Disney animated film, The Lion King. I'm pretty stoked to talk to Lion King. True story. I saw that movie in the theater like four or five times. I don't remember what. I saw it many, many times. And uh, always been and always will be one of my favorite movies of all time. Easily my favorite of the Disney animated movies. Yeah. Um, like hands down, the one I love the most and uh, if you have a more favorite Disney animated movie, you're actually wrong. Yeah, it's, you're actually objectively it, 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 wrong. It's wrong. It's The Lion King. This is as good as it gets. And yeah, and we're excited. It, yeah. Yeah, I think it segues out of Black Panther because the themes of Black Panther around what it means to be the king, what it means to rule, the, the journey that a son goes in the shadow of the father. Exactly. Totally overlap into The Lion King. They both take place in Africa. So, you know, I'm really stoked. There's a lot of animal imagery. So, yeah, I'm, I'm so stoked to talk The Lion King. I'm ready to get into it. Before we begin our, our Lion King discussion, if people want to reach us, Laurel, how can they reach us? If you want to reach us, you have lots of options. You can hit us up on uh, Twitter at The Midnight Myth. 
or on Facebook or on Instagram. We are at Midnight Myth Podcast. We also have a contact form on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. Hit us up there. Let us know what you want to hear, what you thought of the episode that you just listened to, and join in the conversation. We would love to hear from you. While you're at it, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe so that you get new episodes delivered weekly. And leave us a rating or a review if you have the chance. Awesome. So a few fun things about Lion King. It is, uh, if you consider Lion King to be a hand-animated movie, which most of it was, meaning that you had artists drawing on cells each frame they had to draw, um, it is the highest grossing handmade, um, hand-animated movie. However, big portions of the Lion King, such as the Wildebeest stampede scene, was done digitally. So if you consider it a digitally animated movie, it is the third highest grossing digitally animated movie. So it's clear to me that this movie captured something within the American cultural zeitgeist, that it it made a huge impact. Everybody saw it. People are still seeing it. It's turned into a Broadway musical that's traveled the world. Um, There's spinoff cartoons, spinoff movies that have happened. So I think similar to the, the Black Panther discussion, the first question that I have for you, Laurel, why do you think Lion King is so insanely popular? There are, yeah, there are so many reasons why it's so popular. And one of the things, too, that's coming soon is going to be the uh, live action, in air quotes, because most of it is going to be CG, but uh, the live action adaptation and remake of The Lion King in the next few years, which should be exciting to see the update. But one of the most successful pieces of that movie that sticks with us so much is the visuals, is the hand-drawn animation. Um, and it's really interesting to look back, especially knowing that Disney technically had their B team on this while the uh, the other team was making... Pocahontas. Pocahontas, which yeah. they thought was going to be the, the bigger, bigger box office yeah. hit. And so this, this team that they didn't consider to be their kind of varsity... Uh, crew was making this movie about the you know the plains of Africa and turned out some of the most beautiful and striking imagery and animation in the entire Disney canon from the moment that first sun rises and you hear the circle of life playing you are completely immersed and completely engrossed so one of the you know most successful pieces of that movie is just the brilliantly beautiful animation from start to finish totally but I think agree more than anything uh, of course, the music is a, a huge part of it. The music will not leave your head for days after you watch it. You know, Hakuna Matata, and I can't wait to be king. But I think the movie really succeeds on the merits of its story. And we're going to jump into a lot of the themes tonight. But the story, of course, is not original. It's not something that they came up with out of nowhere. Um, there are some people who do think that it's uh, ripped off from a smaller animation studio's movie, Kimba the White Lion. And there's a case to be made for that. I'm not interested in making that tonight. But more importantly, the story of The Lion King draws upon what's considered the greatest piece of literature in the English language, which is William Shakespeare's Hamlet. So by familiarizing us with these really universal beats of that story of Hamlet that also reach back to mythology, that also reach back to biblical mythology with the prodigal son and uh, so on and so forth, It provides us this story that blossoms out into this beautiful piece of really emotional and moral development for a character who we grow to love. Yeah, I um, 
I totally agree. I think it's worth just echoing and saying that I think a huge reason for this movie's success among adults and children is the music. And I think it has some of the catchiest, some of the most repeatable, some of the most iconic musical numbers of Disney history. I think after three or four watchings of The Lion King, you know almost every single word to every song. And that is unique to Disney, but usually gets one, maybe two standout songs. This one has so many songs. And what's so important about the songs and why it's good that they stick with you is that they completely articulate the philosophical um, standings of the characters and the universe that we're playing in. So the first song, The Circle of Life, lays out the ontological system by which every character in the story lives. I Just Can't Wait to Be King tells us so much about Simba as a character. Hakuna Matata lays out another philosophical way of living your life. And even Be Prepared articulates Scar's political philosophy of of populism, right? So there is an intense connection to the story. These aren't just pop songs that are catchy. They are giving us so, so much more. And you're forgetting... Can of I course, feel the love can you tonight? feel the love tonight? Which I will mention at some point in this podcast, but yeah, it's where? also deeply important to explaining the philosophical changes in Simba. And Simba and Nala falling in love. Yeah, classic. Yeah. So I think the, the music to me is the sort of glue that glues all of the different pieces of the Lion King together. And I think it, it is the sort of wow factor, if you will, it's the distinguishing characteristic. You could do a reimagining of Hamlet and put it in, you know, a African plain, a, a savanna, if you will, and have all the characters be animals. Uh, but if you don't have those songs, people aren't going to care about it as much. Exactly. Exactly. So jumping into kind of what is so moving and powerful about this story, one of the things I want to explore is not only the connections to Hamlet and the connections to that universal story, but even more importantly, where the Lion King departs, where the Lion King chooses to depart from that story to give us a new lesson that's different from you know a 16th century Shakespearean moral. Um, so to start, I want to lay the groundwork with the circle of life. So the song that opens the movie, of course, explains to us that everything is connected in this grand chain that is uh, defined by relationships of animals who live in this same ecosystem. It's defined by food chains. It's defined by migration and grazing patterns. It's a, an ecological system that has persisted for generations, for centuries in this, uh, in this savanna. Uh, and so it's the it's the way of life by which everybody in the story lives. Uh, and everything is connected in this delicate balance that's laid out later by Mufasa. Now, what this echoes in Hamlet is actually a really early ontological system that was imposed on human life and on our place in the world as humans. Uh, real quick, before you do that, for those that may not know, what is an ontological system? Yes, of course. So... Ontology is a system of philosophy that explores what being is. So it's it's the philosophies of what are, what is, what is real, and what how we live, and who we are, and what we are. So it's a pretty big umbrella, but that's kind of where this lives. So it's the reality of this circle of life, or the reality of you know this system by which we live. Uh, but the uh, ontological system by which 
um, that this is based on, that Hamlet really lives inside, is called the Great Chain of Being. Now, this originated with Platonic philosophy, philosophy of Plato and Neoplatonism, but it extended far, far further into medieval and Renaissance Christianity and even into Elizabethan England. So this way of life actually underlies a lot of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, So it's really central to Macbeth as well. Um, But within Hamlet, we get a lot of um, criticism of it. We get a lot of comedy that revolves around the idea that there is a hierarchical system by which we all live, which has God, of course, at the top, then the angels, then the saints, then the king, then you know the nobles, then the peasants, and all the way down through the animal kingdom to the rocks and the worms. And this basically says that this is your station in life, and that's ordained by God. And it's, an, it's a delicate balance that if you disrupt, you throw off the entire divine system. And that's really put in place to keep people where they are, to stop social movement, uh, and to say, you are where you are because God wants you there. So in, Ham- in uh, Shakespeare's plays, like when Macbeth or when Claudius, Ham- Hamlet's uncle, usurps the throne, it throws the entire world into chaos. Something is rotten in Denmark. So the circle of life is, of course, a, uh, a direct reference to this great chain of being that's so part of Shakespeare and Elizabethan England. It's the system that cannot be undermined without throwing the entire world into chaos. And Mufasa talks about the circle of life and explaining it to Simba, who will one day be king, and says, you know, everything exists in a delicate balance. As king, you need to understand that balance and respect all the creatures from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. Simba, of course, says, but dad, don't we eat the antelope? And Mufasa says, when we die, our bodies become the grass and the antelope eat the grass. And so we are all connected in the great circle of life. Now, this has a direct corollary in Hamlet, which is at the same time speaking without such reverence of the circle of life or the great chain of being, but actually throwing some shade at it, if you will, where Hamlet is making a joke to Polonius about how, you know, a man may fish with the worm that hath eat of a king and eat of the fish that hath fed of that worm, basically saying that when a king dies and his guts decompose, then basically beggars are going to shit out the king. That circle of life is so connected that it's, it's almost meaningless. Interesting. So you take that to say... Hamlet is saying that it is meaningless because at some point in time, the king will become worm food, which then becomes fish food, which then the beggar eats the fish. Yeah. Hence the beggars eating the king so that the king itself is meaningless. Whereas I would say Simba, I'm sorry, Mufasa is arguing that uh, you need to respect this delicate balance and maintain it. Yeah. Where Hamlet is saying, you know, this is just a reminder that, even if on earth you may hold this great position of power, you're still going to be beggar shit someday. I, I wonder if the great chain of being, as I understand it, is a line from God to all creations. Mm-hmm. And it seems very vertical. It is, yeah. It, it's very top-heavy. one direction, yeah. Power comes from God, and everything is within that. Whereas I feel like the circle of life is not a vertical. I mean, it's called circle of life. Yeah, it's a really interesting departure. 
And I think you can understand the ecological system of any wild and you know habitat as once there is a disruption in that balance, it ripples throughout the entire circle. Absolutely. You know, we've seen it where, you know, humans have, for example, brought a plant into an environment where that plant never existed, planted the plant, and then it ended up throwing the entire ecosystem out of whack. Absolutely. It's a really interesting way to contextualize this um, this connection that, that the Lion King is drawing with Hamlet, because one system is an observable phenomenon uh, that is that is real, and one is a system of rules that has been imposed by humans who have an agenda upon raw, raw reality. So there's this difference between raw reality and uh, what we create to bring order to our reality. I guess the real central question that I'm trying to, to pick at and to understand vis-a-vis The Lion King and Hamlet is really what is the nature of power? Yeah. Where, where does power come from? And in that respect... Both the circle of life and the great chain of being provide a similar answer. Yes. In that it comes out of the natural world and that birth determines power. So if you are born as an animal that exists at a certain point in that food chain, Mm -hmm. that is your natural place in that food chain. If you step out or change that food chain, you risk disrupting and changing the entire ecological system. And hence, there's going to be chaos, discord and death. Yeah. Whereas in the great chain of being, it says power comes from God through the angels to the saints to the king. And then when you disrupt that power base, there's a similar disruption that would happen as in the circle of life. Yeah. So I guess the question that I would raise looking at the Hamlet and circle of life lens or Hamlet and Lion King lens. So if we can understand the great chain of being as an example that power is ordained by birth and the circle of life making the same argument. Yeah. Power is ordained by birth. If that's not true, where does power actually come from? Right. Right. No, that's a a huge, huge question. And well, that gets us to another character. Yeah. That gets us to Scar. And Scar offers a counter argument. Yes. Scar says that power comes from those who are willing to grab and take and hold onto it. Scar is operating in a hyper-realistic view. The circle of life and the respect of the ecological system is insignificant towards grabbing power. Same as Claudius in Hamlet or Macbeth in Macbeth. Yeah. And Scar makes a bargain for power. He goes to the disenfranchised, those at the bottom of the food chain. and Those who are left out by the circle of life. Says, hey, I can elevate your position in this chain as long as you help me secure power. He makes a deal with the hyenas. That deal is articulated through the song, Be Prepared. And in that, we can can understand uh, Scar as a bit of a populist. Yes. In the the current political sense. And certainly a demagogue. Absolutely. And so those words, demagogue, goes back to ancient Greece. It goes back to Athens. And those are people who were incredibly good at public speaking and incredibly good at making convincing arguments in the Athenian democracy. And they could sway power to them. Mm -hmm. But the context of the demagogue is they're doing it for their own power, rather than actually doing it to do any public good. Yeah. Um, in history, there is a, a person named Alcibiades 
who is one of the famous Athenian demagogues and used the power of Athens and almost lost Athens a war with Sparta called the Peloponnesian War because he wanted to go wage these like crazy conquests that made no sense but made him look good. Um, you know, and then we have populism and the modern sense, which says, hey, if you give me some of your freedom, I can return and elevate your position. All I need is your yeah, power. I'll vote for you. Yeah. Yeah. So you vote for me. You give me a little bit of your freedom. I'm going to take away, you know, your freedom to move. I'm going to take away your freedom to act and to think. But in return, I'm going to give you back more of the prosperity and in reality, the populist is in it for themselves. They just want the freedom so they can have the power, and they're not going to ever intend to give anything back. Yeah. We actually talked about populism at length in our episode about The Handmaid's Tale, where we talked about two Romans called the Gracchi, the, the two brothers of the Gracchus clan, who made a deal with the Roman people saying, we will give you land reform. We're just going to chink away at some of the freedoms that the Roman Republic had to offer and their political movement they called was the populares, which is the root of the word populism. And so I guess the question that I have is Scar is tyrannical and his attempt to usurp, he has to murder and kill and exile those that he sees as a threat. He elevates the hyenas um, in the food chain, and we can understand that they disrupt the ecological balance. The hyenas don't have respect for the circle of life, and hence the circle of life gets broken. Pride Rock, the savanna, becomes desolate and lifeless. Yeah. And in this, Simba needs to come and retake the throne to reset the circle of life so that Pride Rock, the savanna, can then regrow. It calls back to something I was talking about last week, the idea of the Fisher King, the ancient Celtic idea that the moral uh, uprightness, the moral goodness and standing of the king um, really reflects physically on the flourishing and the thriving of the land. So if the king is harboring this great secret, like that he killed his brother and usurped the throne, a la Scar or Claudius, then the land will become barren and will not bear fruit until that is righted. Well, I don't think the Lion King is making it mystical. I don't think they're saying it's a magical connection. So um, I think they're saying that the hyenas ate all the fucking food, right? Exactly, yeah. And um, Simba needs to come and needs to put the scavengers back to where they belong, scavenging. Otherwise, they're going to eat all the food and then throw off the entire uh, circle of life. So my question is for, for you, isn't the circle of life right then? Isn't it arguing successfully that there is a natural hierarchy, that we should respect all of the creatures within the circle, and if we try to step out of the natural order too much, we will ecologically destroy? So a tangible reality that we're dealing with, oil consumption, fossil fuel consumption, something that we're taking for granted, and it is destroying our planet and making it more barren by throwing too much CO2 in the air. So I think there is almost a level of, wow, you know, maybe this is right. Right. And there are different levels on which you can understand that metaphor, right? So one is on the allegorical level where we're looking at it in terms of each of these being uh, characters with full consciousness who are within this circle of life. And so we have to find a way to morally exist within this circle that also allows for kings to eat their subjects. 
Um, but then there's the RAR, more um, ecological level, where we can ex extrapolate this um, this argument for conservation, this argument for preservation of natural orders. So there's definitely some conflict uh, in those two interpretations, but I think they both bear some interesting fruit. Um, if we explore the circle of life and its merits in um, in The Lion King as through the three different leaders that we get, so Mufasa, Scar, and Simba, we have a, an interesting way to interpret how things are going to be the most successful. Mufasa, of course, we get as the quintessential king who is who is glorified, who is beloved by all, who is knelt to by everyone except Scar and the hyenas, who he has really left out of the equation for his entire time as king. Then we have Scar, who completely disregards the circle of life uh, and, of course, uses his own, um, his own wits and his own manipulation to move things to his will, which ends in this desolation of the land. And then we have Simba, who in many ways may strike a balance between different extremes, I think, because we can't say that Mufasa is perfect, right? Mufasa, if we're going back to uh, how this connects to Black Panther even, is T'Chaka. He is a good king, he's beloved, and his symbol lives on, but he is the proponent of the way things have always been done. He is the proponent of the conservative viewpoint um, and he has maybe left some people to the margins in the past. And then Simba is T'Challa, who is able to say, I respect the delicate balance of the circle of life, but my new best friends are vegetarians, and I'm not going to eat them. And like, there's a way to rebuild this kingdom after it swung so hard the other direction, and maybe right the wrongs of the past. Now, realistically, lions aren't all going to convert to a vegetarian diet and never eat antelope again, and that would actually fall apart in terms of like overpopulation of prey. Um, but on the allegorical level, we get the sense that a new, a new day is dawning with Simba as king, that there is going to be a greater level of diversity and inclusion and respect and sort of a, a mingling of the circle of life that's no longer going to feel so rigid. Yeah, I think it, we, having not touched Simba yet in this episode, I think you bring up in a good point. Because Simba leaves Pride Rock, because he lives as an exile, and he gets to interact with yet another philosophy, which is very much like the the beatneck philosophy, the, you know, tune in, you know, tune up and drop out. I just totally brutalized that quote. I don't think that was right <laughs> at all. But the idea of like, you know, fuck it. You know, yeah. none of this matters. It's all irrelevant. So you might as well just hang out in this paradise and enjoy your time. And hey, if you got problems, good. Shut up. I don't care. Hakuna Matata. And that philosophy of Hakuna Matata is very much rejected by this movie as a valid philosophy. You know, it's worth noting that Simba's trying to escape his past and forget his past. And he is able to experience and see prey as full and complete persons and friends and not as food. And so because of that, the exile does help him and help him grow. But the actual philosophy of, you know, don't worry about it. Nothing really matters anyway. 
um, is totally rejected by the movie in favor of saying we all have a place. And if you don't take your place, the ripple effect is uh, disastrous um, for the majority. Yeah. Um, Simba's exile is key to, uh, to arriving at that place on his journey. Right. So he, he essentially breaks free of the circle of life. He leaves for this desert oasis. He almost breaks free from the cycle of samsara. If we're putting sort of an Eastern philosophy tilt on this and finds, uh, you know, a lifestyle that is nonviolent, that is passive and that removes him from, uh, truly confronting the grief and the pain of losing his father and of really failing his family. And Hakuna Matata is an easy solution to help him just shake it off, right? Yeah, and I think one of the lessons I take away from Hakuna Matata and its role as a philosophy and a competing philosophy in this movie is that the easy solution is never the right one. Right. And that the person that's selling to you, it's going to be simple, it's going to be easy, just follow this catchphrase and suddenly all of your problems is a person that is either misguided, manipulating or lying to you. Yeah. Um, you know? And, and in that respect, it's interesting that you take it that by the end, because we see one Simba returns Pumbaa and Timon are with him, that that means that a symbolism that he's ushering in a much more progressive era that also respects the traditions. That's what I think. But, you know, it, to me, and I think that's a really spot-on analysis, at the end, you know who is not there? The hyenas. Yeah. They are still relegated as scavengers, and they are still kicked to the margins. And I wonder if ultimately, and I do, like, I do often wonder, like, is it better, is it not better to have a unjust system that is most fair to everyone than to try to have an overly just system that ends up being unfair to no one. You know, and it's a, a struggle or a question that someone like Plato, who's not a fan of democracy, often reconciled with, is if you give power to those who don't earn it, that don't deserve it, that aren't worthy of it, they're never going to do it well. They're always going to use it incorrectly. And it does make, I think this movie does make a argument for benevolent monarchy as the best system to preserve uh, prosperity for all, understanding that there will be a few that don't get it. Hmm. Hmm. And in that way, I don't know if that's necessarily problematic, but I think it's something that we Americans definitely need to reflect on because if we don't wield the power that we have, the power of voting, if we don't wield that with wisdom and grace and intelligence, eventually there's going to be a populist uprising where we lose that power. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And we will, we will prove Plato right. And so I think, you know, there is a, a cautionary tale because Plato argued that all democracies end in tyrannies because eventually it gets so messy, someone needs to step in and just run it correctly. And uh, if you look at some of the, the great democracies of history, um, you know, Athenians, they ended up losing the Peloponnesian War at all power. Then the Roman Republic becomes a military autocracy in the Roman Imperial Age. And now we have the next great democracy, America, in its, you know, flirtation with authoritarianism and populism. And we really do need to earn it and really use that power wisely. 
Yeah, no, I think in many ways this movie does ask the question of what is the most ethical way to govern, uh, and it asks it through a, a system that is unfamiliar to us as people, but that we can sort of understand our role in society based on these rigid social structures that are built into the literally dog-eat-dog world or cat-eat-cat world, if you will. Um, and it gives us these these two very interesting extremes of a perfect ruler of an imperfect system and an imperfect ruler of an idealistic utopian system. Um, and so that's why I do think that that Simba is, and I haven't seen the sequels, so I don't know, and <laughs> I, I don't consider them canon. I don't know no. what Simba's reign really looks like, yeah. but we are given a, a literal new dawn. And we're told in the beginning um, by Mufasa that our time as kings rises and falls like the sun, that there will always be evolution and change and that the world will continue to turn regardless of kind of where we fall um, in, in the way that we govern. The only thing that we can do really, and I'm, I'm kind of extrapolating this from Mufasa's general demeanor, the only thing that we can do is try to rule with respect and compassion. And while he may not have fully and completely lived those ideals on earth, he certainly tried and he he believed that Simba was going to be better and stronger than him in the end. Uh, he believed that Simba as king would take the lessons of Mufasa, would take the lessons of his time coming of age and continue to move the world forward. And I will say that, you know, Mufasa as a character, when he does come in contact with the hyenas, when the hyenas are trying to kill, you know, his, uh, his son and Nala, he doesn't kill the hyenas. He lets he shows them go. Mercy, yeah. yeah, he shows them mercy. He shows them respect, despite the fact that they literally were trying to eat his most like beloved family member. Yeah. So I think we get the hit that Mufasa has a deep swell of compassion and caring, and isn't just a brute who's just like, oh, I just got to preserve the order. You know, I think he does rule wisely. Absolutely. And with, uh, with, with bend, you know, he's not unwavering. He sure. may be strong and he may be stoic and powerful and monolithic in a way, but he's not unwavering. Right. Yeah. Um, very, very good points. Uh, just a, a somewhat midnight myth style boomerang, a, a topic we hadn't prepared for, but it just kind of popped into my head. The character Zazu. Yeah. Um, played beautifully by Mr. Bean. Um, yeah, Rowan Atkinson. Yeah, so the, char Perfect. the character Zazu, does he represent some sort of fluidity in status? As he is not a predator, he is uh, would be traditionally prey. He is, though, the, the king's trusted confidant advisor. You get the, the sense when the groundhog pops up, that the groundhog reports to Zazu, then Zazu reports to the king. Yeah. So he's orchestrating and organizing the underground, the the spies, the people who are, you know, organizing all information. He does this job with grace and humility, even though he's kind of a tight ass and sucks a little bit. Yeah. And his comic relief at some points. Uh, but he even then, when Scar takes over, he even serves Scar yeah. in this same role as well, granted humiliatingly, because Scar sucks. Um, but is that an argument that, you know, maybe there is in this circle of life the ability for some that wouldn't typically have power or seated next to power, but then have power uh, 
by by virtue of some sort of uh, a mobility. What do you think? That's interesting. Uh, quick fun fact: John Cleese turned down the role before Rowan Atkinson was offered it. Damn, would have been a very that. different but interesting Zazu if John Cleese played it. But he actually turned it down to play the frog character in uh, the Swan Princess, which is another favorite of mine. Um, anyway, so I think what what it's really arguing for is um, I think it's giving us another side of Mufasa. I think it is showing us um, that he understands and respects the circle of life and the hierarchies that are inherent in it. But even more than that, he's also respecting the merits and um, and abilities of every creature and the necessity of every creature within the circle of life. So saying that like even the ants and the antelope and the um, and the elephants are important because they serve this purpose within our ecosystem. The hornbill serves this purpose within our ecosystem. And we have developed this friendship and this mutual respect because he can provide something to me that I don't have, which is the ability to fly and converse with people of other stations on uh, on this sort of hierarchy. So I think that you're introducing an interesting point that it does show us a, a place where uh, you know, a, an animal could rise to the top. But I think even more than that, it shows us Mufasa's deep, rich understanding of every person's key role within the circle of life, which makes it even less of a hierarchy, right? It's less that the lion is at the top. He may be at the top of the food chain, but there is something that he can't do, and that is filled by the hornbill. Interesting. I love that. I think that is very spot on. I think it it also, I think, upends a little bit that um, that the great chain of being and the circle of life are the same because they're I think they are right. similar in what they say about power, but they are very different when it comes to implementation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, really cool and interesting analysis. And this is why I think that the Lion King's greatest strengths are not in its similarities to Hamlet, but in its departures. So not only does it give us a different view of the great chain of being, but it gives us a different way to understand coming of age and understand relationships between fathers and sons too. Um, how many stories have we talked about on this podcast that make us think of Oedipus or Kronos, the uh, you know annihilation of the father or the uh, you know the killing of the son before he can rise up and overpower you? We see a story here that is based deeply in the in the non-shadow version of the father energy, right? In the king archetype who provides everything that a father is supposed to provide, which is education and support and protection and love that helps a son really develop. And when that's taken early, when that's taken away from Simba early, we have to see him struggle with grief, which is something that me watching this movie, I was four years old when it came out. I had never thought of something like that. It was one of the most like devastating things I'd ever seen on film the idea of losing someone that close to you who is so important in making you who you are, who you define yourself by, uh, and watching Simba try to carve out his own piece of the world when this has been taken away from him. His journey is such an interesting uh, journey of emotional education for me. So we see him run from his grief, encounter Hakuna Matata, which is very much a to be or not to be situation, if we're putting it in the context of Hamlet, where Hamlet is like, I don't know, should I just kill myself because it's all meaningless? This movie lands unequivocally on the side of to be. 
it is better to, and nobler to suffer the slings and arrows. It says that if there's pain and if there's struggle and desperation in your life, the only way to get through is to lean in. It's not to back away. It's not to say no worries. It's to fully feel those feelings, confront them honestly, go back to Pride Rock and tell everybody you fucking failed and see if they still love you, see if they'll forgive you because it's the only way to move forward. Well said. I think one of the most important things that this movie does is even though Hakuna Matata is such a catchy and amazing song and we could we all wish that we could say no worries is have every character who lives by that philosophy really land on the other side of the spectrum. Even Timon and Pumbaa who are the ones who uh, introduce the idea of Hakuna Matata end up sacrificing themselves by putting on a skirt and dancing the hula uh, to help right the wrongs of Scar and the desolation of the kingdom. They put themselves they put themselves out there and say there are some things worth worrying about, and that's what gets them to the top of Pride Rock in this brand new kingdom, this new day that's dawning. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is the clearest message of the Lion King is that. Uh, Hakuna Matata to me, which, you know, it means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free philosophy. (laughs) Um, I think we can understand that philosophy as saying, don't worry because nothing matters. And while I align with the idea that you can control your level of anxiety as you go through life. Yeah. You can control what you worry about. Some things you need to worry about more. Other things you cannot worry about and you'll be just fine. So I think there's wisdom in saying chill the fuck out, you know, like, and I think that is something that Hakuna Matata can be very beneficial. But at the end of the day, Hakuna Matata as don't worry because nothing matters. It's like, well, no, that's where it falls flat because things do matter. And maybe, you know, an asteroid hits earth and we're all no longer here and it doesn't matter cosmically, but within our own spheres, the things that we do and do not do reverberate and echo and have an effect. And I think Pumbaa, Timon, Simba coming out of their paradise with worry-free living and deciding to take power back from Scar is about as scathing as of rebuke of like leaving and dropping out of society. Yeah. Which I totally don't agree with. You know, I think it, it sounds romantic to say, let me just leave all of this behind and I'll just go in my little watering hole and I'll eat bugs. That yeah. sounds really romantic and great end of the day the world is big and interconnected and we all have a a part to play in this narrative and we should play that part and it's not to say that you don't necessarily need that on your journey to coming of age you need to try out different philosophies you need to try on different hats before you can land in the fullest version of who you are and so simba trying out hakuna matata is what finally gets him to align with his kingly energy. And it's what brings him back by outright saying, that's not how I want to live my life. I want to live my life by love. And he kind of lands in a, in a new world where the world at once is in perfect harmony with all its living things. Yeah, because I, I can think of all of the knucklehead dumb ideas that I went through in my course in my life, in my journey through yeah. life, and that I'm still going through. You know, and you never know what picking up and exploring one idea or philosophy where that might lead you. I'll give a tangible example. Yeah, do it. So like renegade punk rock Derek, when he was 
I want to say 14, maybe 15. I heard about the philosophy of Satanism. And I Hail Satan. And I went to the borders, because that's where we went at that time. <laughs> yes. And I bought the Satanic Bible and I read it and I was like, oh my God, I think I'm a Satanist. Until doing a little more digging and research, realizing that Satanism was based largely off of the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. And so I'm like, well, if it's based off of Friedrich Nietzsche, why don't I read Nietzsche? Then I read Nietzsche and realizing that Nietzsche had a lot to do with existentialism. And this journey took years that got me from, you know, one point, which was just like youthful anger and like, fuck you to the establishment. So I'm going to be a Satanist because fuck everybody. That sounded cool. And then opening up that book led me to so many different areas that did legitimately enrich my life and make me a better, more rounded, smarter, and cooler person. So you never know where, if you want to explore your inner Hakuna Matata, where it might go. Yeah, we have to encourage and embrace this exploration in ourselves as we are on this journey. And this is why I think The Lion King is such powerful education, Uh, why I think it was so important and formative for me to see as a young person is that we, we all deserve a chance to explore different ways of living our lives. And kudos to all of our, our parents who have allowed us to have those journeys. I know my parents did. They encouraged me to like take that journey within myself. And because of that, I've come back a stronger person. But the only way really to, to shake off your problems is to look at them head on and dive in. So the one thing I think we haven't talked about yet that might be worth talking about, um, Rafiki and his character and what he does and what he represents. Rafiki to me is in the time-honored tradition of the spiritual advisor. Yes. The mystical, almost mystical force. He is the uh, centaurs training Greek heroes. He is uh, the um, Cheshire cat on Alice's journey. Yeah, He yeah. is that force that comes when the hero needs it the most to give the hero the advice that the hero needs. Or the slap on the head. Or the, sla- the, the knuckle wrap on the head. Yeah. You know, and I think Rafiki has done ex- extremely well in that time-honored tradition of that, you know, that spiritual counselor that shows up when it looks worse, when the hero is at the very end, to sit there and say, no, you know what, you're the king, and I see your father in you. And because I see the father in you, your father can still live. Now, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to dwell on the past, or are you going to go back to Pride Rock? Yeah. Are you going to live in your past, or are you going to learn from it? And in the end, is there, with Simba, fighting off all of the hyenas? Yeah. I think, and that's a crucial element that most stories, iconic stories, stories that really last and reverberate, they have an Obi-Wan Kenobi to the Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Right? And that's what Rafiki is and operates in this story. And I think it's cool. I agree. Just wanted to mention it. Yeah. And another way that all of the, uh, the creatures in the circle of life assert their own uh, power and their own uh, very special, unique qualities. Cool. Well, any final thoughts? Uh, this has been great. I've loved talking about the Lion King, especially coming off of Black Panther and talking about what it really means to be a good king. And I, I, I love kind of imagining what Simba is like as king of the Pride Lands. And this has been a really great discussion. Until next time, guys. Hakuna Matata. Be kind. And be kind. Be kind.